if you don't work with and use the local community, then often what you're going to end up delivering isn't going to be accepted by the local community. We do sometimes get quite resentful of being talked down to from people from across the river, because that's what it feels like. We're sort of like their missionaries being sent out to Southern Africa or something. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this week's show, we talk to Tony Dyer, a Bristol born and bred politician. Raised in Hartcliffe, he is a member of the Green Party. He once stood as mayor as MP for Bristol South and is standing as a councillor in Southville in May. A working class candidate, he defies all the stereotypes of the Green Party, so we talk to him about create a new image, the real problems that occur in Bristol South, and all the infighting in internal politics in the city. How can we make it all a bit nicer? Why, why the Green Party and why not the Labour Party for you? OK, well, why not the Labour Party? I, it wasn't so much a sense of me deciding that one minute I'm not going to be Labour Party and the next minute I'm definitely going to be Green. I mean, there was a big gap where I was just dissatisfied with politics completely, so I wasn't interested in any political party. Um, and I think in terms of Labour, it was just... In a way, my dad had always been a very strong Labour Party supporter. Your dad was a postman, wasn't he? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, he started off, originally, he was working on the roads. He was an asphalt guy. And then when he got older, he became a postman because basically it was a dangerous job. But yeah, he was Labour. My granddad was Labour. There were certain things that happened and it just felt like my dad was badly treated. It basically just didn't sound like they were really interested in the people that actually lived in the area. And I just thought maybe politicians are all just in it for themselves. And it really put me off politics for a long time. And that, it sounds a bit of a cliche to say, but it was almost like that feeling that, yeah, we know you're going to vote for us anyway. So, you know, we don't have to try that hard. I don't, I don't think that applies to all Labour Party people. There's a lot of Labour Party people who I know, and I know they work damn hard. For, for people but there is also element within that which just seems to be more interested in counting the votes and as long as we win the election and if we have to do as little as possible to win that election then that's okay by us and bristol's always been well bristol safe in particular has always been a labor safe seat really but 1935 yeah. is is basically the last time it it wasn't a labor seat so you really, when you stood as an MP for Bristol Safe, you were pretty much on a hide into nothing then, really? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the point of me standing to a certain extent was just to try and raise some topics and some issues that I felt had been overlooked in previous campaigns. And this was- so I stood in 2015, then 2017, yeah. and then 2019. And I think I said in 2019, you know, three strikes and you're out, that's enough for me. I, I won't be standing again as a parliamentary candidate. That takes some adversity to keep coming back and getting beaten. It's surprisingly quite a common theme for Green Party candidates. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it comes with the territory. Thing. So let's roll back a little bit before we dive into your sort of political career um, kind of now. When did, how old were you when you joined the Green Party? Oh, um, I didn't join the Green Party until 2008, so 44. That is pretty late, isn't it? Had you voted for them before? No. Were there particular policies or particular things that the Green Party drew you towards them with, as opposed to being a Lib Dem, for example? I think it was really a couple of people that I spoke to, spent quite a bit of time with, with Glenn and chatting to him. He was another Noah Wester, and it was Glenn that basically suggested I, that I might want to get involved with some of the stuff the Green Party was doing. I took that advice, and I must admit, I went down with a bit of trepidation, sort of thinking, this is going to be me sitting down with a bunch of yoghurt-weaving basket makers or whatever. And the first person I met was Charlie Bolton, and Charlie is just a decent guy. So it was Charlie yeah. basically sealed the deal with me, I think. You were kind of accepted pretty straight away. Then, even though, would you say you felt and were definitely different than most of the people in the room? Um, I think my experiences were different than most people in the room, but it was also a sense of that being welcomed. I think it was, and I think this was one of the things that I realised quite quickly with the Green Party is that they realised they're not perfect. They realised that they've got a lot to learn, and that they need to reach out to more people. And so they were very open to me coming in and giving me the opportunity to you know, say some things that were probably you know, they may not have been used to before. You challenged some people. What's the phrase that we're supposed to use? There was frank and open debate. <laughs> <laughs> Where I am in Bristol West, there was quite a Green Party push. I would say pre, pre-2015, I saw loads and loads of Green Party posters around Bristol West. And I think that was a lot of people joining the Green Party because they felt that Labour were too cosy with business, too centrist. And then suddenly Corbyn came in and they all went back to Labour. <laughs> so, so my question is, now he's gone, do you envisage increasing your membership and vote count because the Labour Party have changed a different direction with Starmer? My, my gut feeling is that there will be some people, particularly those who went from the Greens over to Labour, who might want to come back again. I'm not sure whether that's a large number. I think there was also a lot of people who were very strong Corbynite. You probably won't see the Greens as being the place for them because there are different different emphases and different priorities or what would seem like different emphases and different priorities. What are the fundamental differences in terms of policies between Labour and the Green Party? And I ask you that because I'm not, 100% 100% sure, genuinely. In a nutshell, I think the key difference between them is that whereas with a lot of the Labour policies, sometimes the environmental and the climate issues are seen as, here's the policy, how can we make it a bit more climate friendly? With the Greens, it's the opposite way around. We recognise that the issue at the core of what's happening is climate change and then make other policies fit around that core of tackling the climate emergency even through a lot of people who hate to admit it the greens and labor have probably got more in common with each other than either of them have of any other party two things for me from that one there's an awful lot of energy and time invested there's shouting going on upstairs my, my, my kids are trying <laughs> to get to bed there's developing a row between two of them which happens every night at the moment um is that there's an awful lot of energy invested into squabbles particularly on twitter 
um, between Green Party candidates and Green Party councillors and Labour councillors and that kind of thing. But so I went to Bristol West Hustings and I sat down and listened to my MP, Thangham Debonair, and Green Party MP, Carla Denyer. And for an hour and a half, they pretty much agreed with each other about literally everything, <laughs> bar voting system, I think, if I recall. And, you know, they were, they both spoke brilliantly, but it was really boring. I genuinely came away thinking I did not know the difference between the two parties and their policies. Yeah, I think that happens more often than not. I mean, particularly in Bristol, I think, because if you look at the Labour Party MPs in Bristol, Kerry McCarthy, for instance, is very green in many of the policies, and I have a lot of respect for Kerry. Yeah. And I, I think the difference is, is that that type of debate that you get in Bristol West, the green candidates everywhere else are the same as that, whereas I think with Labour, I get the impression sometimes they they pick horses for courses. So if you go to a more industrial part of the country, you might have more disagreements between the MP candidates. So my kind of second point, which I touched on, is that there is quite a lot of niggle that goes on. From a neutral observer, it can sometimes be quite... Um, quite engaging quite quite amusing there's some sort of key characters because I don't see you getting involved in that so much to be fair but is there is there genuine dislike between the parties in Bristol a bit be honest um I think there is dislike between certain individuals but I also think to a certain extent it's like you were saying a few moments ago about your two children upstairs squabbling yeah and sometimes with the Greens and Labour it's a bit like that it's a bit like we're squabbling because we expect a bit more of each other, I think. I think Labour respect more from the Green Party in terms of supporting some of the things that they have done. Mm-hmm. The Greens expect more of the Labour in going a bit further. As for me, no, I, I don't tend to get involved in that, particularly with the mayor, because I consider Marvin to be a friend of mine. I'll debate with Marvin and we'll disagree on things, but I'm not just going to go on Twitter and just have a go at him. You're probably one of the green politicians who is probably respected by Bristol Labour Party, I think, you know, and probably vice versa as well. But it, it does get quite vitriolic and it has definitely got worse in the last couple of years. Would that be fair? Particularly as the Greens have become more of a force. And I think in the past it was easy enough to ignore the Green Party. But now I think in Bristol, same as in Brighton, Nobody could deny that we are a force to be reckoned with. Biting at their ankles a little bit. Yeah, the worst thing that could happen to us is to be ignored completely. And in some parts of the country, we are largely ignored because we haven't made the impact we have here in Bristol. And that also works the other way because they're they're the champs at the moment and we're the challengers. That always is going to create some element of animosity. And I mean, and and that's okay, isn't it? It's politics. This is what politics is i think that 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 people maybe don't need to get so emotional about it yeah and i I think that is the point i mean and i think sometimes when i see some of the debates and some of the conversations going on and sometimes i I look and i think no i have worse arguments than that with members of my family i mean you know it's they're not always as bad as they look when you actually bear down to them i mean you know it's not as if Labour and the Greens are arguing about whether to deprive people, you no know, children on free school meals from being able to eat. We tend to agree on that. Yeah. Stop. Right there. Thank you very much. I need somebody with a human touch. 
I got your attention, didn't it? If you want me to stop singing in this advert, you need to start paying some money towards the Bristol Cable. This is with an advert now. The Cable is membership-led, with about 2,000 and rising members. All walks of life, all chucking in anything from a pound up to, I don't know, 100 quid. I can't afford that, but some of you may listening. If you want our media to remain independent and free of advertising from, you know, not very nice companies and things like that, the cable is for you. And, you know, we'll continue to do this show. I'll continue to do this show if we're funded. Um, Won't reveal what my fee is, but it is absolutely extortionate. Although I accept at the moment things are pretty tight for most people, so no pressure and all that. Right, back to the chat. It's probably because there's no opposition, is there? I know, I know there's been a few statements put out against national conservative, you know, government policy recently. But, you know, conservatives obviously aren't uh, aren't really a threat. Maybe Bristol North, uh, you know, at, at a push probably. So I guess there there isn't the Tories to sort of kick against. So you, there's a sort of infighting on the left. So my broader question is that, do the, do the left spend too much time arguing amongst themselves uh, compared to the right? And and we need to kind of, when I say we, I'm supposed to say neutral journalist, but I'll be honest, I'm on the left. I, you know, I'd sue me, I am. Do the parties need to start to work together a bit more? I think they, particularly at a national level, because, I mean, this current chaos of a government is no good for any decent human being. So we do need to to work together to get that idiot out of number 10. Um, but I think, to be honest, the wheelbarrows to that aren't necessary cooperation between the Greens and, and Labour or even potentially with the Lib Dems. I think no. the, the big barrier at the moment is is the arguments that are going on within the Labour Party that's stopping the Labour Party from being as effective as, as a national force as it should be. One of the big kind of battles, I think, is is both sides, both sides of the Atlantic and across continental Europe, is this kind of rise of populism, um, where you have traditional working class communities of which you are from that may have been, you know, people who voted traditionally on the left have um, bought this kind of populist line. We've seen the red wall collapse. We've seen, you know, Trump narrowly be defeated, but seventy million people still voting for him. And for the for the Republicans in this kind of new uh, repackaged, rebranded sort of proto-fascism, that's the real battle, isn't it, for working class representation and the real battle on the left? Yeah. Then all this internal stuff, sure. Yeah, I. It has to be, and I, I think. But also, I think part of that a lot of the reason why, you know, when I go back to Arcliffe and I chat to people, they're the impression I get from a lot of people is, you know, a lot of them are voting for, let's say, the Brexit party, despite Nigel Farage, not because of him. They they think he's a burke. He's got nothing in common with them. Um, mm. And I, I think what the problem has happened is that there is this sense of being ignored and not listened to by large tracts of the population and the response to that, I think, has been awful. Essentially, oh, well, you're only voting that way because you're too stupid to understand what it means. Sneery, isn't it? It's very sneery. Yeah, it's, it's looking down on people and saying, well, you voted that way because you're stupid. 
and you're not going to persuade people to vote for you by repeatedly telling them they're stupid. And that doesn't mean that you need to turn around completely and start to accept the more extreme elements. Racism is not acceptable, yeah. but not sure. everybody is that far on that line. People often, I think, see Bristol as this Labour city and this Remain city, but there are huge pockets. And, and I'm glad you said that. Cause when I went out and about doing bits and bobs of journalism and other work around uh, Hartcliffe, around Noel West, around Withywood, people were voting for the Brexit party. Yeah. And, you know, and people were kind of turning to the Tories because Bristol, South Bristol's a big area and you've got Southfield and Bedminster. And I think that there's probably a bit of complacency in the city, but I see pockets of that, that very much mirror the national picture. Yeah. I would argue that large swathes of, Labour voters are far more middle class than working class these days. Yeah, somebody did a survey in which they came to the conclusion that actually more working class people had voted Conservative than ever before, let alone the Brexit Party. Let's ask why. I think a lot of people are, in a way, where I was 20, 30 years ago, where they were starting to think the people they've normally voted for don't necessarily care about them as much as they thought. I mean, you know... Look at Bristol South, Arcliffe and Willywood and Noah. As I mentioned before, they've returned a Labour MP every election since 1935. Yet they're still amongst the most deprived parts of the country. Have the Labour Party failed in South Bristol? I think so, yes. And that's despite a lot of really good people in the Labour Party working their socks off. Nevertheless, it has failed and I think that failure to some extent, has been you know, from failing to recognise that Bristol South is not one entity and some parts of Bristol South are being left behind because of policy decisions that have been taken miles away in London. What are the key issues for South Bristol for you? Jobs. Jobs and education. To give one clear example, when the Imperial Tobacco Factory closed down in Arcliffe, a couple of thousand jobs gone, plus all the supporting jobs, and they've never been replaced. And as a result, a lot of people in Bristol South have to travel across the city up to Avonmouth, spending their lives stuck in traffic jams and often getting some of the lowest wages that you'll find anywhere in the country. So what's the solution to that? The solution is, in my opinion... One of the things that we we have seen a lack of public investment, instead what we have to do is we have to persuade private companies to come and invest and they choose really where they want to invest. And often that's not Bristol South because Bristol South doesn't have brilliant transport links. You have to build roads. There's been no effort to look at alternatives type of employment, green employment that might create more jobs and might help the rest of the city get closer to this carbon neutrality we're supposed to be aiming for. You're not going to stand as an MP anymore. Do you accept that the Green Party wouldn't win Bristol South? Is that why? I think, realistically, we don't put enough effort into Bristol South to win it. So you're focusing on becoming a councillor for Southville. That doesn't seem necessarily like your demographic either, though. Isn't Southville a bit posh, mate? <laughs> Southville is always <laughs> well. Southville has always been a bit posh. Just ask anybody from Bedminster. Um, yeah, well, but yeah. having said that, I mean, my wife was is born and bred in Astongate, and yeah, you no. Know, if you try to tell her that she's middle class, I think you might end up being belted. <laughs>
But are you targeting that because you think there's a realistic chance of winning, but you probably wouldn't for Hartcliffe because you don't think you would win, even though you're from Hartcliffe? But I live in Aston Gate. I live in Southfield. I, to be honest, mate, I would be embarrassed to stand in Hartcliffe because I feel like I'm trying to be representing an area that I'm no longer part of. There are other people standing, and I won't embarrass them by naming them, but there are people who are standing in Hartcliffe who deserve to be elected because they're much more in touch with what's happening in there now. Embedded in that, in yeah. that community, yeah. Because that's quite common. Well, maybe with councillors, but with MPs, MPs do get like parachuted into areas they're not... The two Brexit party guys that stood in South Bristol weren't from South Bristol. They came in from Cornwall, one of them, I think, if I remember rightly. I can't even remember the guy's name, but I think he needed a map to find out where Bristol South was. But, you're, but you still presumably have a, an interest in the South Bristol area. Do you know what? It's, it's a funny one. But that part of Bristol is the only part of Bristol that says, I come from South Bristol. I've never met anyone who says I come from North Bristol. No. I'm from East Bristol, but I would never say I'm from East Bristol if someone asked me. But when you ask someone from, there is a sort of bounded tribe of collective identity by being from South Bristol. Is is that to do with the, that whole sense of feeling neglected and wronged a little bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not too sore. I mean, I jokingly say it's because we be from Somerset, mate, and you be from Gloucestershire. Yeah. But yeah, that doesn't yeah. hold up because a lot of the people that ended up in Artcliffe, came from Barton Air, for instance, and my granddad on my mum's side was originally from the Old Market area. They were moved out as part of the slum appearances, so they were moved out to Noah West, and he was part of the... All the metrics and all the deprivation indices still indicate that there are those communities in South Bristol that are are not being served, regardless of whoever is the political leadership in the city. Yeah, I mean, if I think if you look at the indexes of multiple deprivation, I think of the 10 most deprived neighbourhoods, I think all 10 of them are in either Fairwood or Artcliffe or Woodywood. I mean... I think it's just that's one, just, just Lawrence Hill. That's it. The rest are... Yeah. And do you think it gets the attention as much um, in the context of policy? Because, um, I mean, I, I've worked a lot in inner city and, they, you know, we've had a lot of issues and problems here as well, but there's been quite a lot of different you know from new deal for communities the 10-year funded project to eastern renewal to lots of stuff around st paul's i don't see there's been as much funding for south bristol as there has for central no i don't think there has in the 90s there was a big push to get some funding which didn't happen at the last minute for some reason we were told no you're not going to get the funding and it was never properly explained i think there are a few good things but it's never been substantial and sustained has it no i don't think it is and a lot of it seems to be relatively piecemeal for instance mm. you, you've got groups like no west media center doing a lot of really good work in the arts yeah. and also working with local communities and then you've yeah. got other similar type of groups doing stuff but it does seem to be a bit hit and miss the bottle yard gets all sort of pushed out as a south bristol thing doesn't it so I've, I've heard that been spoken about as a big achievement yeah um i'd I, I sense cynicism in your tone. Go on. Well, I, I think the bottom yard has been. There's nobody from South Bristol working there, is there? <laughs> That's the point. I said this in a meeting. I said, yes, it's brilliant. It looks great. You, you, how many people from Arcliffe and Noel West are working in the bottle yard? Yeah, not not very many. There's not very many working at the airport either. Yeah. I mean, it's... Do, do we need to challenge this stuff? When New Deal for Communities came to Barton Hill, there's one brilliant thing they did. When they were building things, they, they all used local building companies and they employed local kids on apprenticeships and they get and i just thought that sort of stuff is is central yeah you know 
if if you don't work with and use the local community, then often what you're going to end up delivering isn't going to be accepted by the local community because there is no there is this feeling in with South Bristol we are to use the word quite tribal and we 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 do sometimes get quite resentful of being talked down to from people from across the river because that's what it feels like so you know we, we feel like we're sort of like the missionaries being sent out to uh southern africa or something yeah yeah is that and that's people still feel that you think a lot of people do i mean i, I still remember people complaining about when we used to have the Aston Gate Festival, which I really miss. And then one year, they, yeah. they couldn't order at Aston Gate because of foot and mouth or, or something. So they held it at Hengrove and nobody came because they didn't want to go to South Bristol. Yeah, no, I remember that. Aston Court, not Aston Gate. Yeah, that, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, um, they moved it to weird industrial estate it was. I was there. It was odd. Yeah, it was yeah. Hengrove Park. It's interesting. So key things at the moment in, in the context of South Bristol, or the, certainly the, the things that have got the headlines, have been the proposals for a ring road through South Bristol have been There's the a part of me that thinks that the uh the proposal for a ring road was almost inevitable once we built or the South Bristol link was was built, which was supposed to have the Metro bus one in down it was never appealed. No, the the road joint spatial plan that's being put together by the rest of England involved building loads of houses and then that had to be linked to some major road being built through so that people in those houses could drive somewhere else. In Richards in particular and in Engrove, the ring road, because it's likely to go through that neighbourhood, is a massive issue. I think the Lib Dems are campaigning on that very strongly. And as a result, they're likely to sweep all three councillor seats in the elections, I think. Arcliffe Farm, there was a feeling with Arcliffe Farm that... It was treated differently than some other similar organisations had been treated elsewhere in the city. It was felt there was a different set of criteria by which they were being judged. Um, Jubilee Paul, yeah, well, no, Engrove Park has been built and a lot of money has been spent on that. Preston has just given that everybody needs to be persuaded to go to Engrove Park so they can meet their targets. I mean, I also have concerns about Bristol South Pole down down here in, Dean, in down in Dean Lane. We basically don't have enough swimming pools as it is. But what I also will say, Neil, is that at the bottom of all this, and the reason for a lot of these decisions having to be made in the first place, regardless of whether they're the right decisions or not, is that we've seen massive cuts to... You, you basically have people having to fight over crumbs. Yeah. There has been an awful lot of waste of money, but the amount of money that was lost for Bristol Energy, for example, or the amount of money that's been spent on consultancy fees from KPMG, and the amount of money that's been spent on, you know, the, the bridge to the arena. You know, that's difficult when people are talking about things being cut for local communities. I totally get why somebody that feels, I want a local swimming pool in my area, and they'll go, well, we can't afford it, but you're paying money out for... Those choices are limited because of national funding, but that's still a choice, isn't it? Yeah, it is a choice, and that's one of the real bugbears I have. When you know someone's being paid 120 grand a year, and then they've been laid off, and then they're continuing to be paid for 18 months, and you're cutting libraries or you're juicing youth services, and the argument that I've had back is, well, we have to stay competitive. I don't know, and that doesn't that doesn't wash with normal people. I know. No, I think the problem is that you're pulling the ground out from underneath people who are making the arguments for more funding 
and saying that we can't afford it unless we get more funding from central government, if at the same time another part of the same organisation is clearly spending money like there was no tomorrow, it it just mm. makes it difficult for people to understand. And on that, because I do think that the where it's been um, difficult, you said you said you clash, you know, you you count Marvin, the the mayor Marvin Reese is a friend of yours, but you can have disagreements. Um, you know, I've I've known him myself a, a long time as well. Do do you um, do you feel that that these these all that these are decisions um, that were you know the type of decisions that George made that were criticised by the opposition? Some would say are similar decisions that have been made for big infrastructure projects now. Um, is that just the reality? If you're if uh, you know if Tony Dyer was mayor of Bristol now or or or, or anybody you know, from whatever political persuasion is that reality is in a city like Bristol, particularly in, in an age and an era of austerity, um, there are people in this city with money and um, you've got to dance to their tune because if you don't, nothing happens. I think there's an element of to that that's true. I think because of the way public services are funded or not funded, you are or you can be stuck in a position where you have to accept something that isn't perfect or otherwise you will lose something completely. Um, but I do think also at the same time, and this doesn't just apply to the last two mayors, it also applies to administrations be- Pre- before yeah, that, previous. is yeah. I think sometimes yeah. the City Council has folded too easily, easily persuaded to go down a certain path of least resistance, rather than standing up and saying, no, we're going to hold out for something a bit better. Mm. And and having said that, it's difficult to do because I've worked in the private sector. The level of scrutiny that you undergo for spending budgets that are one-tenth of what I used or was able to spend in the private sector, there's no comparison. In the public sector, and obviously that there's so much bureaucracy and red tape that it kind of halts innovation. And, and I think probably um, the... The, the current administration are, are in a position when they're trying to kind of find a middle ground between both. Um, and some people would say things are happening. Uh, it's quicker for things to happen. And other people would say that it's not transparent and democratic enough. Um, how can you find that, find that balance? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? I've, I've, I, and I'm going to say this and it's not intended as a criticism of, of anybody in particular, but I think what we increasingly see is a breakdown in trust. Mm-hmm. I think that in order to get transparency and to get scrutiny, there needs to be a degree of trust between those you are providing the information and those you are elected to scrutinize it. And that means that both sides have to fulfill their part of the bargain, which is that you provide the information and make it available, and the people you are scrutinizing it, scrutinizing it entirely on the basis of what would be good for the city and i think for for some time now there's been too many people that i've seen that as an opportunity to score political points yeah i i think that's a really good point no this is the only comparison i'm going to make between myself and marvin i think it would have been a lot easier for me to be more open and transparent than it is for marvin to be open and transparent and I think that's because of the the nature of our, of the two parties that we represent. 
Expand on that. I think in the Green Party, there is much more discussion and consensus reaching. You've heard this a lot about the Green Party not having a party whip. So there's nothing we can do to force another member of the Green Party to vote for a policy. We have to persuade them. Yeah, I see. It's almost like it's more like a Stalinist inner circle. I think. (laughs) I mean, there's factions within the Labour Party, isn't there? Within that, yeah, I I, I hear you. Yeah, the other side of that, of course, is that sometimes, I mean, and I'm this, I've probably walked out more Green Party meetings than anybody else in the Worcester Green Party. Because sometimes you can have the debate going on longer than it probably needs to. It's messy, isn't it? Uh, there, there, there is no perfect... It takes longer to get there and all that kind of stuff, yeah. I guess. And I suppose you're in a position where you want to make impact. Sometimes you're going to going to kind of bypass that. We're, so we'll come to the end a bit now. But in all these conversations, what we try to do, hopefully, is talk to everybody in the city from all, all stripes, but also try and find those people that maybe are less tribal, which I think you are, you know, you're one of those people, but also those points of overlap where we can be robust and challenge each other, but also try and look for positions of solidarity, I suppose. Do you try to foster that from a Green Party perspective? I know you might do that in your own stance. Do you try and intervene sometimes when you see some of the kind of attacks or do you sometimes step in and think, whoa, 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 calm down to somebody or do you not and I'm not and I'm not saying for one minute that it's the Green Party councils are to blame for this. I think it's six of one and half dozen of the other, to be honest. Yeah, and, and as you point out before, it's not necessarily Green Party councillors. Sometimes it's people who are on the fringes of the party. Green activists. Yeah. yeah. I think there are occasions where I have spoken privately to individuals and said, Look, this is my view of that. Maybe you could have phrased that a better way and got the solution that you were looking for. I probably have stayed away from calling people out on it publicly because I I think sometimes if you want to get people to improve their behaviour or to be more positive, yeah. do that in public as the opposite effect. Yeah, that'd be quite weird. Yeah. I mean, probably arrogant of me, but you no, know, I restrict myself to the Greens. I think I've said that to a couple of people from other parties as well, that maybe they were being a bit unreasonable in the way they phrase something. Sure. And what I tend to find in most cases and no, no, maybe it's just me, but I do find that you can often then have that lead to a discussion and a debate and you learn a lot more. And then yeah. sometimes a bit later on, you see that person making a contribution and you think, ah, I hope that I helped and contributed to that because that's I can agree with that and that's a hell of a lot better. For sure. My kind of final question to you is, as a working class man from Hartcliffe, the Green Party, as we discussed, may have a certain stereotype or a certain view that people may have so my key question to you is how are you going to recruit more Tony Dyers to vote for the Green Party to become members of the Green Party and to stand for the Green Party because presumably you want to broaden your base broaden your reach what what do you need to do as a party well to be honest that's starting to happen already not a lot of people seem to notice that in Southwood which is often seen as being a very middle-class, very green part of the city. We have two working-class Bristolian-born candidates for the Green Party. And that's happened elsewhere as well. I mean, it is starting to happen. So we're on the right route. And there are also people like Cleo Lake, who is doing a hell of a lot of work in that area, reaching out to people that the Green Party probably hasn't reached out to before. Um, Yeah. And... Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think this this election coming up will be a critical measurement for the Green Party in terms of how well we're doing. Because on, just on Clio, when I say no doubt, I think there's probably been a class stereotype, but also probably the Green Party being seen as predominantly a white middle class thing that she probably is somebody that's able to connect and broaden black and ethnic minority green supporters as well i mean the reparations you could argue the reparation stance is going further than the labor party are yeah i, I would say so and it's, it's green party policy now correct it's been adopted as a green party policy yeah. i have to say it's not entirely green party work it, it's the work of a load of activists including Cleo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I just mean they picked that up, picked the ball up and said this is now Green Party policy. Yeah, it, they have. And I'm really pleased about that. And I'm really pleased for Cleo because of the amount of work she's put into it. But we do have, let, let's be blunt about it, all the political parties are dominated by the middle class and largely a white middle class. So yeah. the Greens are aware of it. I think to a certain extent, some parts of Labour are in denial about it. And I think maybe the Tories don't care. But, I mean, mm. yeah, we're working on it. What's this space? Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you, Tony. We were going to have a drink. Did you have a drink during that or not? I'm on my second glass of wine during that. Oh, uh, you are on your second. I just had a cup of tea. I should have opened a bottle, really, shouldn't I? Maybe if I lie. I'd, oh, yeah, I'm, I've been drinking whiskey. <laughs> Mate, I am so disappointed in you. That's... Sorry. I mean, it's bad enough yeah. that you got me drinking wine as a working class uh, representative. Do you know what? The the, um, the, the executive, when well, he calls himself the executive producer, Adam Campwell Corn, he said, What is two working class men drinking a bottle of red together? Because I said, oh, We're, we're going to record tonight and we're going to have. We're going to share a bottle of red. And he said he was just, he was, uh, yeah. And I said, well, you know, we're reclaiming. Like Fergie with his red wine cellar, <laughs> we're reclaiming it, aren't we? Yeah, I've, look, I've met Adam before. I mean, if you've got a double-barreled name, you lose all credibility, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Please leave that in, uh, Rosa. Please leave that bit in. Well, that's a great line to end on, actually. Yeah. And um, good luck in May. Is it going to go ahead? It will, wouldn't it? COVID-wise and stuff, you think? I'm pretty certain it will do. Are you going to carry on drinking, by the way, or are you going to uh, finish? Oh, I think I'm probably going to have an early night now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, mate. Take care. Cheers, mate. So I sat in the kitchen now having a cup of tea, just uh, reflecting a little bit on that. Um, he's, he's very honest, isn't he? That's one thing I got very honest for for a politician and unguarded. I was particularly interested in the kind of machinations of party politics and how actually it didn't even seem to be necessarily the kind of manifesto policies that separated two, but some of the internal politics that kind of kept him away from the Labour Party and also the experience that his dad had. I think also talking about South Bristol with somebody from South Bristol that is very close and connected to some of the issues on the estates like Hartcliffe. People often talk on behalf of those communities and to 
at all with an authenticity like he can is is refreshing. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. Next week, we will have another guest talking about something fascinating in the city. And do please subscribe to the podcast where there are lots of episodes from this series as series one. And if you want to, we appreciate times are a bit tight at the moment. Become a member of the cable, chuck a quid in a month and keep us making the kind of in-depth reporting that is making our city better. Big thanks to our editor and audio producer, Rosa Eaton, our executive producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, to the cable members for allowing us to make this work. I'm Neil Mags, and this was Bristol Unpacked.